All right, church, we've got some ground to cover this morning. We'll be in Exodus chapter 7. Our objective is to make it through the entirety of the chapter. Uh, Where we've been in Exodus so far, we've seen God's people arrive in the land of Egypt. This is the conclusion of the end of the book of Genesis. So way back, if you can remember, we began this series taking a quick, hard look at Genesis in two weeks. God moves his people into Egypt in response to a famine. He does that by using the estranged son of one of the patriarchs, a man whose name is Jacob when he's born. It's changed to Israel. His son's name is Joseph. Joseph comes to Egypt, and Joseph is able to welcome his family into Egypt, even though the way that Joseph got there was being sold into slavery. He's forgiving. He's gracious. God redeems that situation. A few hundred years pass, and Joseph, who was very highly regarded in Egyptian society, is forgotten. He becomes sort of a legend and a memory and and maybe just just a concept to the the reigning pharaoh, the king over Egypt. And so as the people of Israel grow from the 70 people who arrive with Joseph's family at the end of the book of Genesis into a nation of several hundred thousand, they become more and more a threat to the people of Egypt. And so the beginning of the book of Exodus, we saw the pharaoh uh, willingly begin to dehumanize God's people. He takes these oppressive tendencies he has because he wants good things to happen for his Egyptian family, for the nation that he rules over, but he begins to turn those into demands. And we define that as the heart of an oppressor, as the heart of an abuser, is to demand things that are really just desires. And so in order to justify uh, the, the dehumanization of these people, the Pharaoh begins to communicate to the Egyptians, to the nation, that they're a military threat, that they're a sociopolitical threat, that they're a cultural threat. And so eventually the people of Egypt get on board with this idea that Israel need to be enslaved. So the Pharaoh enslaves them, and out of this harsh reality, they begin to cry out. And God hears their cry, and he comes and visits a man named Moses, a man who was born as an Israelite, uh, through some very interesting and God-ordained circumstances, grew up in the palace of the Pharaoh, and then eventually leaves. He self-exiles out of Egypt because he murdered a man. Moses has an anger problem. Okay, he lays hands on this guy and ends his life, tries to bury him in the sand. People find out, and Moses leaves. While he's wandering in the desert, God meets with him. God comes to him in the form of a bush on fire. It's burning, but it never burns up. And in that experience, Moses bears his heart before God. He is honest with God that he's embarrassed. He doesn't think he speaks very well. He doesn't identify with this calling to go and set people free. He feels that he tried to do that, and when he did, his own people rejected him. Yet God continues to call him. God continues to draw him out. God continues to communicate that there's still life left in Moses, and there's still um, value to God in the covenant that he made with his people hundreds of years before. So the last couple of weeks, we've seen Moses come back out of the desert into Egypt. God sends his brother Aaron with him as just sort of a a boost, a confidence boost, a guy to be a helper to Moses. Moses and Aaron stand before the Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 5. They communicate, our God, whose name is Yahweh, demands that his people be allowed to go and worship him in the desert. And the Pharaoh says, I don't know who you're talking about. I know other gods, I know the gods of Egypt, but I've never heard of this Yahweh God. He must be a small God, and he must not be that big of a deal if he's just the God of a bunch of slaves. I'm not going to listen to him. And the Pharaoh feels that this desire to go and worship comes from a heart of laziness among the people of God, among the Israelites, and so he doubles down on the oppression. They continue to be enslaved, they continue to be oppressed, but he removes their ability to make the bricks that are really the only value that they offer to the people of Egypt. And so their circumstances go from bad to worse. Last week, looking at chapter 6, we saw God's response to the brokenness of his people. We saw that as Israel's spirit breaks under harsh slavery and under this fear that though God talks a big game, he'll never act on it, he won't do any of the things that he said, they just crumble. 
And God goes from communicating his plan to beginning to act on it. That's where we arrive at the beginning of chapter 7. And so today, the first half of this chapter, we're going to look at the hard-heartedness of the Pharaoh. This is a major theme in this book. This is probably something you've been waiting for me to get to eventually. It's contentious among Christians. We're going to go there. We're going to go all the way there. I'm going to try to help you understand what's going on. And then the second half of our time this morning, we're going to look at the idols of culture. Where do the Egyptians derive their idols of culture, their identity? We'll talk about where our culture today does that, and then we're going to see some parallels about how God dismantles those idols lovingly to lead us to himself. So let's jump into verse 1 of chapter 7. This is God's response to his people not believing, not wanting to obey, not trusting him. He says to Moses, look, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and I have made your brother Aaron to be your prophet. Now, where we see God right there, you'll notice that it's not the Lord, like we talked about last week. Uh, The word that God, our God, Yahweh, is using to refer to Moses in Hebrew is Elohim. So he could be talking about just himself, but more generally what he's saying is, I'm investing in you a sense of divinity. I'm going to make Pharaoh feel that you carry some divinity with you. Why? Why is that important? Well, God's already divine. He can do whatever he wants. Why does he need a man to do that? Because in Pharaoh's world, human beings represent divinity. When two political figureheads come together to negotiate a truce or to go to war with each other, the Pharaoh of Egypt and the Egyptian people see these huge, massive powers, these gods standing behind those armies. And they basically feel that they're just sort of chess pieces on the board. And so what God is doing is he's preparing Moses to enter into this environment that Moses is not really prepared to enter into on his own, and he's going to try to have Moses and Pharaoh be able to stand on equal footing so that Pharaoh will take Moses seriously. That's the idea. Let's keep reading. He says, You will speak all that I command you, and then your brother Aaron will tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. So again and again, we're going to hear Moses make specific personal indictments of the Pharaoh, and then Aaron's going to just sort of issue this broad idea that you need to let our people go. And then Moses is going to go after Pharaoh's heart and after his disobedience and after his hard-heartedness. And Aaron will just say, and then let our people go, let our people go. So there's sort of a personal and impersonal aspect of what's happening. Verse 3, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, even though I'm sending you to do these things. And although I will multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, verse 4, Pharaoh will not listen to you. And then when that happens, I will lay my hand on Egypt. And I will bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, I will bring them out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. That's his name, Yahweh. They shall know when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. And so, verse 6, Moses and Aaron did these things. They did just as the Lord commanded them. And at this time, Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, verse 9, when Pharaoh says to you, when you go to him, he'll reply to you and say, prove yourselves by working a miracle. And then you, Moses, will say to Aaron, Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. You remember in Exodus chapter 4, God did this with Moses at the burning bush, right? Moses has a staff. God says, throw it down. It turns into a snake. Moses jumps back. So he's done this before. God's saying, do the same signs that I gave you there in front of the Pharaoh so that you can demonstrate that you have power behind your words. And so verse 10, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and they did, just as the Lord commanded them. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants and it became a serpent. And then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and they, collectively the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their own secret arts. For each man cast down his staff and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. So right there, just 
if I can pause with you, this is the moment, if we're reading this story for the first time, I know we have all kinds of cultural things happening in our heads. We're picturing the DreamWorks movie, The Prince of Egypt, or the VeggieTales version of this. Like, we already think we know what's going to happen. Just if you can try to see this with new eyes, the end of verse 12 is the moment when the Pharaoh should have gotten off of his throne, got on his knees, and said, obviously your God is bigger than my God's. You may do what you like. What does he do instead? Pharaoh's heart was hardened, verse 13, and he would not listen to them, and it was as the Lord had said. As Moses and Aaron approached the throne room of the Pharaoh, they could not be more alone at this period of their lives. The people of Israel are not supportive of them. The elders don't go with them. There's not a big parade. People are not picketing outside the palace demanding Israeli rights. This is two men who are going against the, the ebb and flow of their culture, choosing to do a thing to be obedient to God that doesn't make any sense to them or anybody else. The people of God at this point don't believe that Yahweh can make their lives better. In fact, probably some of them have actively worked against Moses and Aaron, begging them not to go back to the Pharaoh and not to make things worse. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Rocky or not. If you haven't, you should watch it sometime. Uh, Rocky, for those of you that don't care about sports or don't watch movies, is a movie about a boxer from Philadelphia. And in this movie, it's maybe an hour and a half to, to two hours long, the whole movie, the entire building action works its way up to this one boxing match where this guy named Apollo Creed, he's supposed to have this big world heavyweight fight, and the guy he's supposed to fight hurts his hand, so he can't do it, so Apollo has this crazy idea. He's like, let's find a local. Let's get a street fighter, we'll get him in the ring, I'll box him, it'll probably take me two, three rounds, but it'll make me look like I'm really benevolent, I'll be the good guy, I'll come out on top, and he'll get some street credit. Like, we'll pay him just to participate, and that'll be good enough. So that's sort of the premise of the movie. That fight, at the end of the movie, goes 15 rounds. I don't know a lot about boxing, but I know that fights don't go longer than 15 rounds. That's when they end the fight, because after 15 rounds, guys start to kill each other. Like, you, the, the bone structure of your head after 15 rounds of boxing is so much like pudding that it isn't safe anymore. A person could just knock your brain out of the back of your skull. So they go 15 grueling rounds, and it's a movie, so it's really dramatic. There's lots of shots where they get punched and the spit flies out of their mouth. As a kid, watching this the first time, if you had a similar growing up experience to me, this would come on TV like every Thanksgiving or Christmas. They would just do a marathon for like nine days of the Rocky movies, and I'd just be running around the house in my bathrobe. I thought it was the coolest. But the first time that I watched the movie, I didn't know what was going to happen. Because this is not a Disney movie, okay? Like a lot of the movies we watch, as soon as the movie starts, we know, okay, that's the good guy. That's the girl he's going to fall in love with. There's going to be something bad that will happen. And then at the end, unexpectedly, everybody will triumph and we'll all feel good, right? That's like most movies that we watch. Rocky came out in the 70s. In the 70s, you could watch a whole movie, and at the end, the good guy would get shot and the credits would roll. That's it. It would just end. And you would go home and be sad. And you'd be like, I don't want to do what that guy did because I don't want to get shot at the end of my life. So I'm watching Rocky just body blows over and over again. This is his whole strategy, fighting, is to just like turtle up in his shell and not die. That's the whole thing. Like there's a scene earlier in the movie, I wasn't even sure if I was gonna tell you this quote, but I'm, I feel like I should. Uh, there's a guy who trains him named Mickey, and uh, Mickey is like, wants Rocky to be a good fighter, but doesn't want him to get killed, and so they're in this hotel room, and Rocky's really pumped up. He bought a nice suit. He's getting ready to go to the fight. He's gonna impress this girl that he loves. Maybe they're gonna get married. And Mickey's like trying to get him not to do the fight. And Rocky gets mad at him and he kind of pushes Mickey. Mickey's like this little, kind of gritty, like Boston guy. And anyway, Rocky pushes him. He's like, why, why you won't get off my back, Mickey? And Mickey's like, he's going to kill you to death inside of three rounds. That's how he talks to him. He's like, you don't stand a chance, Rock. He's, he's mad. He's throwing stuff. Anyway, so, so they get to that point. They go through round three, round four, round five. Over and over again, Rocky's like, don't end the fight. And he's bleeding. Half his face is missing. He's like, don't end the fight. I've got to stay in the fight. As a kid, watching this happen, I was convinced he's going to die. 
Like this, this man, Apollo Creed, this, this machine who's been perfectly trained his whole life to do nothing other than knock people out with his hands is going to obliterate this guy from Philly. Like Rocky's whole training regimen is to run around town in sweatpants, punch frozen sides of beef, and eat raw eggs. That's the whole movie. Everything for 90 minutes is that, okay? He gets in the ring, and he survives. But I, I connect with the idea of the people of Israel Having seen this man, Pharaoh, trained his whole life to do nothing other than rule and dominate anybody he comes into contact with. Like Apollo Creed in this movie, there are scenes where there's people who are paid by him just to stand this close to his ear and tell him how amazing he is. And talk about his arms and his legs and his muscles and his mind and his speed. They are pouring into his ego and this is the world of the Pharaoh that Moses and Aaron are walking into. Like Moses and Aaron have been jogging around the desert in sweatpants, eating raw eggs, hoping that they have a chance to tango with this guy, the Pharaoh. And the Israelite people who don't know the ending of the story like we do, they're like, don't do it. He's going to kill you to death inside of three rounds, Moses. You don't stand a chance. Yet they step into this space, this, this really focal point of all of the known world, like the palace of the Pharaoh. There's a man in the palace. Everybody in the palace is looking at that man. Everybody in the city where the palace is is focused on that palace. The, the city is literally built in a ring around this building. The nation of Egypt is built in a ring around this city. The known world economically and culturally revolves around this region of the world. So this man, when I say to you he's the most powerful man in the world, there's nobody who's a close second. He truly lives like a human being who's been given deity. He doesn't have the character of God, but he has all the power of God. And the people of Israel just don't believe there's a chance in the world. They're too tired to hope. Maybe you've been there before. I don't think there's a more human emotion than that. You know the right answers. You understand the promises of God. You've got a copy of Jesus Calling somewhere in your house. But you're exhausted. It doesn't seem like that's doing a lot for you. And I think that's where Israel is. Last week we identified this as sort of a deconstruction process for them. But, but short of that, where the rest of us can connect with their experiences, they just don't feel hopeful. They don't think they have a very good reason to be hopeful. It feels foolish to them. Like, all of this stuff has just gotten worse. They, they basically had their lives go from horrible to horrifying. And now Moses and Aaron are going to go shake the hornet's nest again. And on top of that, if you weren't paying attention, I want to read it to you again. Listen to what God tells Moses in verse 3. God says, you're going to do these things. You're going to go and talk to the Pharaoh, but I, God, will harden his heart. Even though I am going to multiply signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, verse 4, Pharaoh will not, not might not, may not, could not, should not, will not. The sovereign God of the universe is guaranteeing he's not going to listen to you. So right there, for you and I, regardless of how mature our Christianity is, that is a speed bump at best, right? <laughs> like we're reading the Bible and we're pretty on board with what God's doing. It seems like he's listening to people who are suffering. We like that. It seems like he's working on their behalf. We like that. And then all of a sudden God takes credit for creating a roadblock to his own plan, it seems like? Like, what, what is, if God wants his people to be set free, how does hardening Pharaoh's heart help with that, we ask ourselves? Doesn't it seem like by hardening Pharaoh's heart, God is maybe only prolonging the suffering of his people? So at, at, at best, it's a speed bump. At best, it's something we have to do something with. But at worst, it's a wall. Like, it's actually a barrier to us that prevents us from having faith in a God like this. Operatively, we read a story like this, we look at Romans chapter 9 where Paul explains what's going on in this chapter and really doesn't make it seem any better. He just doubles down on the idea that God does what he wants when he wants to and it's offensive to us. It makes us worry that if God is willing to do that, what does this mean for you and I? And I think there's really only two ways we can deal with this in our lives. And one is we attribute this to this sort of cold, mechanical, unfeeling idea of sovereignty. 
And I'm going to pick on those of us that land in that camp because that's the camp that I live in, okay? I've, I've done that before. I've pulled the sovereignty card in a very human, very feeling Bible study small group session. Somebody will go, this doesn't make sense. I don't get it. And I'll go, well, God's sovereign. And the pot shouldn't question the potter. Like, okay, that's true. Who did that help? Nobody. That didn't help anybody. Not really. We, we have this sort of like framework that begins to replace God's character. It begins to replace his personhood. Like he himself is a being that exists. He's not just a set of rules and explanations and scientific processes he's put into place. So yes, that's true, but that's maybe not the entire picture here. That's maybe not what we're supposed to do is oversimplify and dehumanize this story to the point that we don't understand and don't have compassion for a man like Pharaoh. The other end of the spectrum that we sometimes go to is we just secretly hate this. We wouldn't tell anybody that, but we don't like it at all. It feels gross. We don't get it. We either choose to ignore it because we're too scared to let it really impact whether or not we trust this God, or we just kind of always have this thorn in our boot that pokes in our foot every time we read this story. And we try not to think about it, and we hope that the church isn't going to preach it that often, and maybe we can survive. We can just sort of keep our eyes on the parts that we like and move on. Maybe you don't feel strong enough to say that out loud. I'll just say it for you. This is my perspective, okay? If, if God is playing games with people in order to make himself look good, I want nothing to do with that. And I think you want nothing to do with that. But that's not really what's going on. You see, both of those extremes are a misunderstanding of what's happening here. What we believe when we make this mistake is, is we believe that God, if, if God had not hardened Pharaoh's heart, that Pharaoh's heart would have been soft. That's what we think. We think Pharaoh was already a soft-hearted guy, but God made him this way. And whatever we think hard means, wicked or rebellious, unfeeling, robotic, we believe that Pharaoh had a shot at having a good and kind heart instead. And maybe we would be tempted to use sort of our postmodern lens to try to understand who Pharaoh is and to blame other things instead of himself. We might be tempted to attribute Pharaoh's sins to his father, to the way that he was raised. Obviously, the Pharaoh of Exodus chapters 1 and 2, who is the father of the Pharaoh of chapters 3 through the rest of the story, is a horrible person. Cruel in every way, manipulative, willing to use people to get what he wants, to dehumanize and abuse them. My millennial brothers and sisters in the room know what it's like to do this, right? We meet somebody for coffee and we spend all of our time talking about the mistakes our parents made instead of taking responsibility for ourselves. Just want you to feel seen, and that's not fun to hear. But, okay, it's true, we do that. We're really quick to go, well, you know, where my mom and dad came from, so here I am, I'm just kind of ignoring all the choices that we made along the way. So we can't do that, we can't justify away Pharaoh's culpability by blaming the previous generation. That's not okay. We also can't blame the gods of Egypt. We can't blame the socio-political climate that this guy grew up in. We can't dismiss his racism and cruelty as just a product of his worldview. Here's the problem with all of those arguments. Seeing God as just robotic and sovereign in a way that's unfeeling and unkind, or, or hating this but choosing not to dig into it because it feels too hard. The assumption that those positions make is that Pharaoh was trying to be soft-hearted. Let me just say it to you this way. Maybe you've never heard this before. Pharaoh wanted his heart to be hardened. I don't know if you understand that or not. When Yahweh chooses to harden the heart of Pharaoh, he is answering all of the prayers of Pharaoh. Maybe I can unpack this for you in a way that you'll understand. His circumstances are not responsible for his character. The hardness of his heart against Yahweh, this is the thing that he's in pursuit of. Every time he goes through his rituals of worship to his own gods, what do you think the most powerful man in the world prays for? What does he ask his gods to do for him? To keep him strong. To make him strong enough, rigid enough, resistant enough that he would never bend his knee to another god or king. That is what he wants more than anything else. He feels that if that could be his legacy, nothing could make him more successful. 
So as he sacrifices to these gods, as he puts out these edicts, as he oppresses God's people, he is practicing a worship of self. He is elevating his own power, his own fame, his own name above anybody else. And though he wasn't praying to Yahweh to harden his heart, God heard those prayers and he answered them. All that Pharaoh wanted was to be able to go toe-to-toe with a guy like Moses and resist everything about him. He wanted to prove that he was divine. He wanted to prove that he was sovereign. He wanted to prove that he needed nobody, and really, everybody around him needed him. By hardening Pharaoh's heart, God gave Pharaoh the very thing that he wanted more than anything else, the power and the pride and the self-assurance to resist the God of Israel and his demands. When we see cruelty on the part of Yahweh in hardening Pharaoh's heart, we make a wrong assumption that the Pharaoh wanted to repent. He didn't. He wasn't trying. Not only did he not want to repent, God did not stop giving him chances to. Yes, there are ten plagues, but in addition to those plagues, God sends Moses to Pharaoh seven other times. There are 17 face-to-face meetings in the book of Exodus between the Pharaoh and Moses. Every single time, Moses says to Pharaoh, this is your chance to come down off that throne, get on your knees, and worship God. You can still do it. It's not too late. God would forgive you. God would redeem this. God would take his people and leave, and you could have your little kingdom and your world, but when you resist, you are communicating to God that the only way to get to the hearts of you and your people and his people is to go through you. So he will, because he loves you, but he also loves all of the rest of his people. We misunderstand that, yes, Romans tells us that God did raise up the Pharaoh in order to knock him down, but the wicked, self-seeking heart was already beating in Pharaoh's chest long before God did that. God did not make Pharaoh evil. He did not choose cruelty on, on the part of the Pharaoh. All he did was say, you are representative of the wickedness of humanity. I will lift you up so that I can show everybody what I do when I encounter that kind of wickedness. Because it's important to me that you all know who I am. I can say a bunch of stuff. I've been doing that with my people in Israel. I've been making promises. It's obviously not enough. You people don't really believe what I say. You have to see me do these things to understand. So I will show you. I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to go through you. And in a twist of tragedy, the greatest perceived threat that Pharaoh had, Moses, is actually his only spiritual hope. The man Pharaoh spends all of his time trying to defeat and get rid of and run out of town is the one person who has the truth that could set Pharaoh and his people free. Yahweh gave Pharaoh chance after chance to repent, and it never happens. And I'll just say this to you as a pastor. Very few things scare me in life. Like I, as a person who surrendered my life to Christ, even my own death, like, come and take me, God. That's fine. I'll be with you. I'm not posturing. I genuinely have very few fears in my life at all. But when I think about this particular form of God's judgment, That God would hand a person over to their own selfishness and say, fine, you want that bad enough? You can have it. It is chilling to me. Nothing is more sobering to me than that. I'm not scared of God raining lightning bolts and and hail fire from, from the sky and opening the earth with earthquakes and judging sin with some cataclysm. I think at the very least, we would see that and we would acknowledge it. But the quiet departure of God's dominance over a person, of his leadership in their life, of his choosing on their behalf, of him saying, okay, okay, is chilling to me. Maybe that sounds good to you, though. Maybe you are a person who's been at war with God for so long that the idea of just getting him off your back sounds like freedom to you. Let me tell you what it feels like. When you get that, it doesn't feel like freedom. It feels like free fall. It's just plummeting. If you are a person who has resisted God because you don't like the church or Christians or Christian culture, 
what you have done is rob yourself of the only anchor in your life that can hold you. You don't have to like those other things, okay? I have plenty of complaints myself, and I work here. So just hear me when I say Jesus is the object of our affection, not Jesus' people, not Jesus' church, not other things that people do in Jesus' name, whether wise or unwise. It is he himself who can anchor your life. And when you reject him, when you choose, when you say to him, please, God, leave me alone, please leave me alone, please leave me alone, you should not be surprised when your life begins to just dismantle rapidly, exponentially fast, falls apart. Sometimes we make the same mistake that the Pharaoh did. We work really hard at discounting and debunking Yahweh. We want to explain him away. We appeal to creation as proof that he can't be who he says he is, or we try to wave some measurable empirical evidence in his face instead of taking his word as fact. And I'm not saying that following Jesus is supposed to be automatic. It's not magical. Okay, I'm not even implying that it's easy to do. It's hard and it's confusing. It goes against our sin nature. But here's where the miracle can come into play. Some of us aren't quite where Pharaoh is yet. We have the same complaints he does. We feel that it's inappropriate for God to have a claim on our life. We don't, he doesn't know me. I don't, my, does he know my past? Does he actually know my parents? Does he know the, the harm and the pain and the wounds that I carry on my back everywhere that I go and now he expects me to just be nice and act like it never happened? Well, that's a misunderstanding of his word. But if you feel that way, what you're maybe misunderstanding is getting where Moses is is an extreme, or excuse me, where Pharaoh is is an extreme position. You're not quite there yet. If there's still an appeal that you feel for Jesus, if there's still some idea of I like the Christ, but I don't want the church. I like the Christ, but I'm not sure about the Christians. I like the Christ, but I'm not sure about the movement in these United States that sometimes represents evangelicals. What I am saying to you is your heart hasn't actually been hardened yet. There's a tenderness for Christ. There's a tenderness for Jesus, and that is worth listening to. That is worth following. That is worth navigating around all the junk and the people who get in the way and believing that it would be better to get to Jesus and have to deal with the rest of us than to live your life alone. Jesus is asking you to find life in him. He promises that if you look for that, you'll find it. Only him, only he can satisfy the thirst that you have for meaning. Only he can satisfy the hunger that you have to be made new, to find something that's truly good, and he will set you free. But here's what will happen to you. If you do that, if you surrender to Christ, if you come to him, fear and all, inhibitions and all, you will be vilified. God willing, it won't happen in the church, but the culture won't like that you do that. Because in order to walk to Jesus, what we have to do is step on the toes of all of the shared idols of our culture. We don't get to Christ and bring our idols along for the ride. We don't surrender our worship to him and then keep a little bit back for ourselves just for our own time. We can't continue to operate the way that we have in our workplaces, in our families, in our own hearts if we're going to surrender to Christ. So what I want you to understand is God doesn't just have a solution for individual idols like Pharaoh's, okay? God gave Pharaoh the thing that he asked for. I believe that if Pharaoh had sought repentance, God would have done that as well. And that's true for your life. But, but broader than that, bigger than that, we're about to see God now hand down the first of the ten plagues. And in doing so, he will begin to dismantle the corporate national idols of the people of Egypt. Let's keep reading in verse 14. So Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He doesn't believe. He doesn't repent. He walks away. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. So go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water and stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to you, saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed him. 
This is a really interesting scene to me. I don't have a lot of time to get all into it, but basically the Pharaoh is either going down to the water, probably to offer a sacrifice to one of the gods of the river, or he's taking a bath. And Moses is just waiting for him in the bushes. (laughs) He's like, God's not happy with you yet. Pharaoh's like, what are you doing out here, man? Like the servants are probably drawing their swords. They don't know what's going to happen. Okay, so God sends him there. Thus says the Lord, you've not obeyed. By this you shall know that I am Yahweh. So you asked for this, is what God's saying. Remember in chapter 5 you said, who is this Yahweh? I got an answer for you, is what God's saying. You will know that I am Yahweh. Look, behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it will turn into blood. And the fish in the Nile will die. And the Nile will stink. And the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. Yeah, because nobody just drinks blood. Verse 19, the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, over their canals, over their ponds, over all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And furthermore, there shall be blood throughout all the land, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Even the water bottle rolling around on the floor at the backseat of your car is going to be full of blood if you live in Egypt. Do you hear in the language that God uses that he is stating and asserting total dominance over all of the water of the land? Aaron cannot literally walk through the whole land with his staff out, waving it over every body of water. When he stands on the shore of the Nile and lifts his staff, that is representative of God's hand that is already over all of those things. And God is communicating to Pharaoh, I am dominant. I can do whatever I want. I control the things that you have attributed to yourself and to your other gods. Let's finish this passage. So Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. And standing in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died. And the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. And there was blood throughout all of the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. And so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned, he went into his house, and he did not take even this or any of these things to heart. He just ignored it. Can you imagine being so self-secure that you witness a miracle like this, and you go, ah, Hmm, weird, I don't know. Verse 24, listen to what all the people have to do. There's immediate effect. The Egyptians have to dig along the banks of the river to try to find underground sources of water so that they can drink because they can't even drink the water of the Nile. They can't water their crops with blood. They can't give blood to their oxen and their sheep and their children. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. It may already be obvious to you, but the Pharaoh in this story is postmodern in the way that he views himself and he views the people of God. He's a postmodern individualist. Very interesting because he's probably the only one in Egypt and he's probably the only one we get for several centuries of human life. Here's what I mean when I say postmodern. I want to give you a definition. Okay? Postmodernism is the idea that there is a general skepticism that we carry with us, particularly about power and authority. A belief that there are no absolute truths, there are only relative truths, so that it is each individual's right to decide what is true for them. This is the way that our culture wants you to think. And it's the way that most of the people who have a voice in our culture already think. People have been warning about about this to you for a long time. Universalism is coming, they've said. Uh, Pluralism is another word that we've used for this. But the postmodern thought is that I find my identity within myself, and if I like what you have to say, I might give it some validity, but that's up to me. 
And ultimately, you can't hold me to any standard that I have not willingly accepted on my own. Now, part of postmodernism is often atheism. The Pharaoh's not there. He sees himself as a god. He understands that Egypt has many gods, a full pantheon of gods. He would not say, we have no gods or there is no god, as a modern atheist would. What he would say is, your god, Moses and Aaron, has no stake in my life. He has no authority over me. He's a fine and good God for you. That's great. If you want to follow him and worship him, he's not really that impressive to me. But I'm not going to bow down to him because I don't have to. I've got my own thing going on. So you can see a parallel there with some modern thought. Each time that Pharaoh refuses to yield to Yahweh, he's acknowledging that Yahweh is existent. He just won't acknowledge that he has any power or authority. He's saying, that's fine for you, but don't put it on me. And that is something you and I have heard before. That's fine for you. That's good for you. I'm glad you have that, but don't expect me to take any part in it. It's not for me. It's your truth. It's your way. It's not my way. It's not my truth. We hear this. This is the melody of all of the cultural diatribes that we consume on the internet. This is the undercurrent of all the subculture of internet life in these United States. Every article promoting self-discovery or spiritualism or even progressive Christianity requires us to suspend the objective authority of God in exchange for subjective truth that can really be different for every individual. You may not know this, but you and I live in the most postmodern civilization in human history. You could argue that the culture of some first world European countries is a little bit more progressive and postmodern than our own, but I'll tell you what puts us ahead of everybody else is 90% of internet culture comes out of these United States. We have the loudest online voices in the world, and all of them are calling for more and better postmodern thought. Postmodernism is actually itself a system of worship, which is ironic because it kind of by definition rejects worship as a tool, as valuable, but it has rules. Postmodernism likes some practices, it rejects others, it rewards some behaviors, it penalizes other behaviors, and it is functionally a religion. So I want to give you something specific to think through here, because maybe I'm speaking in terms that are too vague or broad or you don't care. Embracing postmodernism requires that we embrace at least one of three idols, Three idols of our culture. Now, typically they come as a package deal, but not always. So, our postmodern idols are these three things. Self-actualization, intellectualism, and the cult of validation. Now, when I say the cult of validation, we used to call that universalism, all roads lead to Rome kind of thing, but universalism now has too much religious baggage for postmodern people to accept it. It's too tainted. It's not pure anymore. So we just have to have this sort of loose, wild west concept of validation, and all of us are kind of all only in charge of ourselves, but it's also our responsibility to tell other people that their choices are good and right, even if we kind of hate them and think that they're self-destructive. If I can help you even further, let me attach some actions to each of these ideas, and maybe you've seen this play out in your life. Maybe this is even something you're participating in today. I think that's very possible. When we talk about self-actualization, your culture wants you to self-define. That is the most important thing that you could do, is look deep inside yourself, find out who you really are, and then let the rest of us know once you've made that discovery. The more you embrace yourself, the more ideal you become to the rest of society in this system. If you've ever seen the movie Frozen, this is the plot of Frozen, right? Nobody should tell me what to do. I have this unique thing inside myself. I haven't totally figured it out yet. It's powerful. It's good. If I could just harness it, it would make everybody's lives better. So I'm going to go away on my own, be really sad for a while, and then I'll come back and be whole. And all of you will appreciate that about me. That's what that movie's about, if you didn't know that, okay? You still watch it with your kids, sing the song in the car. It's okay. Jesus can redeem that. But that's what's going on. This is an undercurrent in our culture. If these are not idols that you bow down to, your children might. So hear me, if you feel removed enough from this, if you're a person who's old enough in your life that this doesn't feel like it's really your culture, what I am telling you 
is 20 or 30 years from now, these things will be even more solidified into the only way to be right, the only way to have merit, the only way to be seen as morally upright in our civilization. Self-actualization tells you that you can't expect anybody else to accept you until you've accepted yourself, and that the solution to any unhappiness that you have is just to go deeper within yourself. Dig into your past, analyze your personality to death, make a pie graph of your moods and when they happen, and try to study yourself to the point that you improve. Second, intellectualism tells you that you need to demystify all things. Dig down and underneath everything that's happening. The better you can grasp history, movements, and philosophies, the necessarily more wise and mature and worth listening to you are. Intellectualism would say that expertise is the only real grounds for merit in a person's life. Therefore, intellectualism becomes its own meritocracy. What I mean by that is, if you don't use the right vocabulary in this society, you are immoral. You're not just confused, you've sinned against your fellow man. If you are bigoted or prejudiced or racist, all you need is to read this book and listen to this podcast. And as your education level rises, your heart will necessarily change, is what intellectualism lies and tells you. It isn't true. The, the hallmark of intellectualism is that therapy is the only universal medicine. It's the solution to every problem that you have. And it makes sense if you think about it. Because if experts, if expertise equals merit, then experts are the most morally upright people in our society. And therefore, therapists now are our modern gurus. They're our modern priests. They're our modern pastors. They are the pastors of our society. People with PhDs get to talk about things that they know a little bit about, and they get to reach into your life. And if the ultimate objective of self-actualization is to know yourself better, then there's nobody better for you in your life to speak more highly of than a person that pushes you back inside yourself. It's what Romans chapter 1 means when Paul writes that there were people who approved of going against God's way, that they encouraged each other that direction and that we saw our civilization crumble as a result. And then finally, the cult of validation says that you must universally affirm everybody else. All thoughts, perspectives, and desires are valid and equally valuable as long as they don't impose on other people. It's a self-defeating principle, but it's still a common argument. These are not logical arguments. None of these three idols are rooted in logic. They are emotional arguments trying to derive their truth from an attitude of logic, which is silly, and frankly, it's the argument an atheist would make against Christianity, that you have these emotional experiences that you're trying to root in reality, but you can't. Well, it's the same thing that the cult of validation is doing. It believes that following the path of your life and seeking your own truth are the best ways to achieve meaning and derive value, and that it is good and right and appropriate for you to expect other people to validate your worldview regardless of what it is. These are our idols. These are the things that we worship on the internet, with our attention, with our time. We worship these things in the mirror, we worship them as we submit ourselves to yet another personality test. Now, I'm not trying to pick on any one of the facets of this thing. What I'm telling you is this is a closed system. We've taken tools that are somewhat helpful to self-explore, and we've derived our identity from them. That is the problem. Typically, almost no idol is a bad thing on its own. What makes it bad is it takes the place of God in our life. It takes the, its voice takes the place of his scripture and his word. It's where we find ourselves. It's where we have hope that these things, we believe if we would do these things the right way, that, that our lives would be better, that they would improve us that they would cleanse us of our wrongdoing. It's a very common narrative now. If we would just analyze correctly and speak in the right way, the sins of our past would, would disappear. We believe that ultimately these things will heal our wounds. That's where we derive our identity. In Egypt, identity was derived from the Nile. The Egyptians saw themselves as children of the Nile. The Nile, the Nile was their lifeblood. 
Uh, In its waters they saw their past, their present, and their future, and three of their apex gods, the highest level of their pantheon, are directly connected to the Nile. Specifically of those three, one is called Hapi, H-A-P-I, Hapi. And he received the most worship out of any other Egyptian god. Can anybody guess why? What do you think he represented that people have always been obsessed with? Sex. Yes. Hapi is the god of fertility. Everybody has some interest in getting this god to bless their life. It's very important to them. Hoppy looks like this, okay? He has a beard, he's a man, but then he has female breasts and he has a pregnant belly. And annually, the people of Egypt would gather at the first flood, which they believed was Hoppy, literally rebirthing the nation of Egypt. I know you wish I wouldn't have done that, but I did it, okay? (laughs) Rebirthing the nation of Egypt out of his female womb, nursing the people and the land of Egypt with his female breasts, and then presiding over them with the headship of a father. Now, we have a God who can both nurture and lead, right? But we don't have to personify him in gross ways to make that make sense. There's actually a hymn that the people of Egypt would sing to Hopi every year at the first flood. They would say, hail to your countenance, Hopi. Who goes up from the land and who comes to deliver Egypt? Who brings food? Who is abundant of provisions? Who creates every sort of good thing? Who fills upper and lower Egypt? Everything that has come into being is through his power. It's basically a psalm to this foreign god. They believe these things about this guy, they worship him, and then one day, the Nile turns to blood. And what do they do with that? What does that mean? When God stretches his hand down and flips all of their ideas of the way that the world works on its head. Pharaoh's in there probably having a bath. He's probably trying to back out as Moses is lifting his staff up in the air because he doesn't know what's going to happen. Is it going to be snakes? Is it going to be crocodiles this time? The Nile turns to blood, and all at once, the economy, the transportation, the culture, the future, the religion of these people is shattered. All of that is derived from the Nile. And God says, the Nile is mine. It belongs to me. I made it. It's my responsibility. I can turn it into whatever I want because I'm in charge of you. He confronts it. He rips the mask off of the idol of Egypt. And this is what he always does. He does it for us too. The Nile itself, not a bad thing. But God chooses to portray it in a way that is horrifying so that we can understand the spiritual reality. We see it. We see it for what it is. Our eyes are opened. And it's disgusting. It's deplorable to us. We reject it. It's the same way every guy feels right after he looks at pornography. All that mist that's been fogging up his brain and telling him it's going to work out this time and be good, it's gone, and there's shame. It's disgusting. It's the way that a person feels who gossips about their marriage just to try to feel better about themselves. It's the way people feel who keep money back and secrets away from their spouse. It's the way children feel when they sneak around behind their parents' back because they feel that their parents don't understand them and are too oppressive. It always feels like the right step, and then we get through it, and it's gross, and we feel stuck. Here is where the mercy of God comes through, loud and clear. God doesn't do these things just to tear us down. He doesn't do them because he wants our destruction. He doesn't want us to stay enemies of his. He pulls our idols down so that we will look away from them to him. Because he knows that we need that. All through the Bible there is language of God taking his people out of what they have had, removing their distractions, and, and putting them in a desert place. It's one of the themes of the book of Exodus, that God would lead his people out of a place where they were, yes, oppressed, but they felt safe and comfortable so that they have nowhere else to look. They're desperate, and they turn to him. That's how much we love idols, is we have to actually be in a place where we have no other option sometimes before we'll even consider turning to God. And I believe that God loves us enough to do that. God rips the mask off of those things. These people try to find their purpose, their value, their identity in worshiping the Nile. You and I, we try to find those things in our own minds, our own hearts, our own perspectives and social constructs. But as we dig deeper into ourselves, all that is waiting for us is more pain. 
more self-loathing, more addiction as we try to medicate, self-medicate away these desires and longings that we have that we can't find a, a, a place that's worthy of in our lives. We can't figure out where to stick all of this stuff that we want and desire because everything seems to crumble and fall and fail under the pressure of our souls, under the weight of our lives. God has an answer to that kind of thinking. God responds to abstract idols with concrete manifestations of himself. He appears. He is the God who sticks his knife into time and space, cuts it open, and steps through as the person Jesus. And he doesn't just say, I've got a better idea than your ideas. He doesn't say, well, yeah, there's some purpose in yourself, but you're just looking at yourself the wrong way. He goes, look at me. Stop looking at you. Stop looking at everybody else. It's the same answer he has to people that have beef with the church or Christians. He's like, don't make that your idol. Don't make all those people getting it wrong be the reason that you can't tolerate me, okay? Those people are still getting it right. They're figuring it out just like you're going to be figuring it out. But they're not supposed to represent the magnitude of who I am. They're supposed to show you what I can do, but there's more to me than them. It's the same thing he says with the plagues. God is not just the God who can turn water into blood. He doesn't just do that for the whole Bible and hope that that's a pretty good magic trick that convinces people. He's demonstrating what he can do so that we will see who he is. And that is the answer to your postmodern idols. When God prevents you from being able to find purpose and meaning and value in yourself, it's not because he's mean. It's because if he did that, if he reinforced those things, he would be putting you in a bag, tying it shut, and throwing it in the river. And yelling, figure it out! You want your own thing? You want your own life? Fine, take it. I think God refuses to do that. I think that's why Pharaoh is an edge case. I think that's why we have a problem with this passage, because it's so uncommon. What is common and what is normal is for Jesus to never stop, to relentlessly attack our idols, to get to our hearts. That's what he wants to do. If you trust things outside of Jesus, I'm just going to tell you, all of those things are dying. They are eroding. They are falling apart. All the time. That's the passage of time in any setting as things just get worse and worse and worse. And the things that you're doing to try to invest in yourself and fix yourself so you can hide yourself from God, convince yourself you don't need him, they're going to fail. Even if you're in your young 20s and it hasn't happened yet. It's my job to stand on the side of the road and go, hey, the road you're riding on, the bridge is out up there. It's out. There's no bridge. I know other people like in your podcast are telling you there's a really good bridge. I've been to the edge of that cliff. There's no bridge. So stop. Don't stop because I need you to listen to me. Don't stop because I'm angry or, or mad at you or I need you to be different. Stop because I don't want you to die at the bottom of that thing. That is what God is doing when he attacks our idols. So looking at the end of the story again, what does Pharaoh do? He sees this miracle. I mean, he smells the blood in his nostrils. He can hear people as they're waking up all over his city, going to the well, pouring water out of the jar, and it's blood. They're going outside. Is it blood at your house too? What happened? What does this mean? He sees it, he smells it, he feels it, he experiences it in the most tangible way possible. And yet he turns around, he goes back to his house, and he's unaffected. Because he's insulated. So this is the thing that I'm going to ask you to do, is to de-insulate. To not pray the prayer of Pharaoh, to not spend all of your time trying to protect yourself from God. Trying to make yourself rigid and strong enough that you can resist him one more day. That path leads to self-destruction. It is a cliff you will not survive falling off of. Don't walk away like Pharaoh did. You're going to go back to your house today. Don't walk back to your house unaffected. Don't arrive back at home and re-embrace all the comforts that you've worked so hard to build for yourself and not think about this God. Bring him with you. Take him seriously. Hear him and see him and surrender to him. 
And if you will do that, if you will look not to me, not to us in this building, not to some Christians somewhere or talking evangelical heads or books or podcasts or experts or whatever, if you'll look away from all of those things and look up to Jesus, you'll see him. And he'll change your life. He'll transform you. Jesus will break you out of the death trap that is your life right now, and he will heal you in a way your idols can't. He will accept you in the way that the cult of validation never can. He will meet you where you are. So may God lovingly and relentlessly dismantle our idols so that we can see him. That's my prayer for you. I want to pray for you right now. Father, we love you. We love you. We love you for making yourself known to us, God. We love you for not just giving us over to our idols. You are relentless. I believe that that these minutes in this room today are an example of you drawing us to yourself, pulling us away from the things that distract us and, and that ultimately want our destruction, that lead to us giving up all the things that we have and getting nothing in return. Instead, God, teach us to make an exchange that leads to life. We ought to be people who give our lives away, but we want to give them to you. So I pray that you would impress upon us the urgency of that, God. Lead us to take that step today, to be willing to say to you, God, I don't have all the answers. I'm not sure about this church thing. I know plenty of Christians that I can't stand, but I want you. And I'll do whatever it takes. Give us faith, God, unlike the people of Israel had. Give us eyes to see. Let us see a miracle in our lives as you use your word to stir us up like you stirred the waters of the Nile, God. Don't let us go home. Don't let us turn our back on that. We want to be eternally changed. We can't do that without you. So we love you, God. I thank you for these men and women, for their families. Pray that you would bless them, that you would draw them close to you and keep them close. We trust you to do these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.